Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Chris Milgate, the driving force behind Tightline Media. We take a deep dive into her journey as an outdoor journalist and discuss her most recent award-winning film project, Ocean to Idaho. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And in case you missed it, the EPA recently issued a new 404C proposed determination with respect to Bristol Bay. The proposed determination would restrict or prohibit the use of certain Bristol Bay watersheds as disposal sites for the discharge of dredged or fill material related to the proposed pebble mine. The EPA will accept public comments through July 5th. If you would like to support this important step towards permanently protecting Bristol Bay, please visit the Take Action link in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, too. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. My earliest fishing memory is actually a little unusual because uh, I wasn't fishing in the waters that I fish today. Today, I fish on public water, on public land, and I fish for wild trout most of the time in the West. But I grew up in the West looking at fish at a hatchery. And so I never, I knew that fish were in rivers and they lived in water, but I thought people fed them. And so we would go to the hatchery and we would catch a rainbow and we would eat it. And it was food being grown to become my food. And now I look at fishing in a whole different way. And I believe it's a more, it's a healthier way as well with that food are, they are still our food, but they aren't just specifically put in our rivers to feed us. Sometimes they're just supposed to be there without any interference from us. Yeah, very neat. When did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> the dark side of fly fishing came to me naturally. I've always believed that wherever you live, you should really become intimate with the natural resources. You need to know about the woods and the water that are around you and connect with those. Growing up in Salt Lake City, that was the Wasatch Mountains. I hiked in those growing up. When I moved to Idaho for my, for my first reporting job, I worked close to the Snake River. And fly fishing seemed like the best way to connect with the natural resource where I live because I can stand in the water. And so I started learning how to fly fish, I'd say like 1999, actually, was when I first had a reporting job in Idaho. And I worked the night shift. So I had to do all the live shots for the 10 o'clock news. And I would take casting lessons on the weekend from the local fly shop. And then I would fish in the morning. And when I was off, that I could learn how to do it when not everybody else was on the water. Because everybody went to the river after work, but I was doing live shots after work. So I always went before work. Yeah, very, very neat. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey? And what do they teach you? The person that taught me how to cast was Jimmy Gavitas. He owns Jimmy's Fly Shop in Idaho Falls, Idaho. The person that taught me to row is Todd Lanning. He's a guide also in Idaho. And the person that taught me to throw streamers, which I'm still not very good at, is my husband. He learned to fly fish the same time as me, but passed me quickly. He's a better rower, a better fisher. I get really loud and really impatient when I fish. And I hate throwing streamers. I prefer to throw dries. So on a day when clearly it's streamer season, say late fall for brown trout, my husband will throw, will throw streamers at the browns 
and I'm stubborn, I will keep throwing dries because streamers are that gray area between above the water and below, and I don't understand it, where dries are clearly on the top of the water, and I like to make the fish come up for that. So I find myself using dries much more often than streamers, even when I know I should use a streamer. Yeah, very, very neat. And, you know, you touched on your career in broadcast journalism. You know, what attracted you to the field? I knew from an early age that I was going to be a storyteller. And I grew up painfully shy and afraid of fears. So how my career turned out is shockingly different than how I grew up. And I knew I had to figure out how to be brave and learn to talk to strangers and look people in the eye because that was what I needed to be able to do to tell stories. I work with strangers every day people I've never met, and I have to develop an instant rapport with them. As far as the beards go, I'm married to a beard, and I run around the woods with beards all the time, so I got over my fear of beards. And the storytelling aspect came in when I realized that I could write. I could write well in high school. So by the time I got to college, I knew that I was going to major in broadcast journalism. I knew that I wanted to tell stories through the medium, which we call video, in all its various forms today. A video was the way I wanted to tell the story because it moves. I also take photographs, but photographs are still shots of one instance, whereas video moves and there has more dynamic appeal to it. And so I prefer video, but I can shoot all mediums. But I've always wanted to tell a story through whatever medium I'm using. And most often that was the outdoor story that took place and developed really early on in my career. Yeah, and, and what attracted you to the outdoor-oriented content versus kind of more traditional kind of local news uh, journalism? And that's a great question, and it's, um, it's got a really easy answer, but it goes back a bit. So the first 10 years of my career, I worked for every network in the country but CBS. That's just how contracts shake out sometimes. And um, I was in charge of covering everything from crops to crime and doing the lead live report for the 10 o'clock news every night, and it could be run the gamut. But I realized that also inside all those stories, there were these other stories that weren't making the newscast, and I wanted them to make the newscast. I always felt comfortable outside. I always kept boots in my truck so I could go from court to a farmer's field if I had to. The stories that were happening outside mattered 20 years ago. People just didn't realize it. So I was covering things like disappearing wildlife and wildfires and water wars. And I was shoving those stories into your TV as well because those stories mattered then. They seem to matter now because they're hitting more people's radar now, but they were always important. And I always wanted there to be a beat for the outdoors and a beat for the environment. And since there wasn't, I just made one. And I figured out how to shove those stories into my assignments around the crops and crime. Then when I went freelance, I stopped being that general assignment reporter that covered everything and niched down to covering everything that happened outside. And that was in 2006. So I've been freelance since then. Uh, got it. And is that kind of when you made the decision to shift away from, you know, broadcast journalism to pick up more forms of mass media? When I went freelance in 2006, I did it, I did it with two purposes in mind. The first was to expand my coverage from just a local reach where I live in Idaho Falls, Idaho to a regional reach, and then to a national reach. And I've done that. I work for outlets all over the country. Sometimes I don't even see them in person, but I'm working for them. Someone like USA Today or PBS. I work with outlets all over the country that helps me reach audiences all over the country with outdoor, environment, 
natural resource, all those topics for stories, I can reach those audiences. So the other thing I did when I knit, when I went freelance was I knit down from that general assignment to outdoors. But I always find is something in the story that makes it worth you watching. Sometimes that's a hard news hook. You know, I'm, uh, we have hybrid trout in Idaho where the rainbows will crossbreed with cutthroat trout. And it's the rainbows are non-native. The cutthroats are the native trout. The rainbows are pushing the natives out. It's a big deal in the West. Well, at the same time, there's also some, there's this new story where that's been found in salmon. That's a, that's a huge interest to people when things start happening in the wild because of drought or some other reason that's pushing their cycles around. So you go in and you find these outdoor and environment stories, and then you find the news hook. So I'm still getting my doses of news coverage, like I've always had since I graduated from college. But my beat, per se, is more on the outdoor side, and it's not always the fluffy stories. There's some really hard issues involved with our outdoors these days, and I like digging in on those. So I have that component of the news element that I was grown up through college and to the beginning of my career with. That still exists inside my stories, but for a different vein, which would be it has to happen outside, not in a courtroom. Uh, got it. And so, you know, just to back up just a little bit, you know, was it a frustration with not being able to tell the stories that you wanted to tell or just a new challenge? What made you specifically want to start Tightline Media? I specifically started Tightline Media because I saw the internet exploding and I knew that all these medias, back then it was radio, TV, magazine, and newspaper, they were all going to mesh. We had the web where everything was going to go and I knew it. And I wanted to be able to work for everybody. When you work for a TV station, that is the only person you can produce content for under contract. They tell you how to cut your hair, how to wear your makeup, what color your shirt should be for the newscast. They also tell you what goes in the newscast. They also tell you you cannot do a story for anybody else. When I decided to quit being a contracted reporter for a TV news station and go freelance, it's not as glamorous as being a free agent in like the NFL, right? But some of the things are the same. I could work for who I wanted and I could work for multiple outlets. So with the web exploding like it was, I knew that I could work for a TV station. I could also work for the newspaper and a radio station and a magazine, many magazines once I went regional, even more magazines and stations when I went national. So I knew that I could diversify my storytelling outlets by going freelance because I could work for more, for more than one outlet at a time. Got it. And, um, you know, what was the biggest surprise or challenge in the early years of your business? Holy moly. The biggest surprise. Uh, that's a hard question because there are so many. I think the one thing that I saw and still see today is the fact that I work in the outdoor industry as media, as a minority. Regardless of how far we've come today, women are still the minority in the outdoor space and they are still the minority in media. Time and time again, I hear, this job's not for you. You're not a man. I certainly am for this job because in Mother Nature's world, outside, Mother Nature doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. It's just a matter of how much discomfort you can tolerate because Mother Nature will dish out uncomfortable conditions. (laughs) Fortunately for me, my tolerance is pretty high what's uncomfortable 
And so all people need to know when I do my job is I do my job well and I carry my own weight. So a lot of times that just getting over that obstacle can't, comes at me all, all the time. And it, it happened when I started as a freelancer and continues today. You're always proving that you can do this job regardless of your gender. That comes up often. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because rumor has it you were born without a danger gene. <laughs> That's so true. Yes. Uh, I think that I think there's a fine line. You know, I'm not afraid to, of adversity. I'm not afraid of what's awkward. I have awkward every day, it seems like. And I'm not afraid to be uh, a lone woman in the woods. Now, thankfully, today, I'm not always the lone woman in the woods, but I'm still in the minority. And where my... Uh, I think there's that, you know, you know when your life is in danger, but that's different than feeling awkward and uncomfortable. I can sit with uncomfortable. I will not sit with unsafe. So, yeah, my my danger gene is tweaked a bit. I can I can tolerate uncomfortable for quite a while. Yeah, I, I listened to uh, the interview you did with Hal Herring. It's actually probably been about five years ago. And, I mean, you were trail running some pretty colossal distances, so I'm a believer. You know what? I think that that trail running aspect has something to do with it too, because um, running 35 miles above 10,000 feet for 12 hours takes a bit of persistence. And the same thing kind of ha- has happened with my career. This is not the kind of thing that I can lay down for easily. And so you've got to have that persistence and that patience and that work ethic that is usually over the top for most other people. And frankly, I picked up a lot of that persistence and diligence following my dad around in the woods because he was always lost. So I would just have to keep following him. And, and those things have served me well later. When I run trail, I, the farther you make me run, the more I like it. And I want it to be challenging. If it's easy, I didn't pick the right assignment. That's how I see it when I'm working. Yeah, very neat. I'm kind of that way, too. Um if it's not hard, it's usually not very interesting to me. Um, <laughs> Chris, do you remember kind of that aha moment in the early days of Tightline Media when you knew the business was going to work? I think, oh, let's see, when my business was going to work. There's some significant points in my self-employed portion of my profession that really stand out. And when we look at them in the context of the rest of the country, they line up with two significant things. The recession, more than a decade ago, and the pandemic. When we went into the recession, I thought I had us covered. And when I say us, I mean my family. Our boys were young. My husband was at the top of his game with a corporation that was national. And they cut all their national staff when the recession hit, say about '09, And he came home. And he was with our kids during the day while I worked. We switched roles for quite a few years. And I had us. And I I kept us going. And I knew it was going to work. And then being self-employed, health insurance gets extremely expensive. And we needed to kind of massage out how we were going to do this because everything I was making was going toward health insurance. And I see a lot of families in this situation. And so as our kids got older and became more independent, they didn't need at daycare or a preschool or an after-school program. And, ooh, now they can drive. My husband has since gone back to work, and we have a more balanced situation in our house. And we're self-insured through him. He's employed by the school district. 
So that took some of the pressure off of me. And I thought, okay, we're good. We're still going to go. This is still going to, Catlin Media is going. And then in 2019, very end of 2019, mind you, came the significant point where I thought, oh my gosh, we're about to falter because the pandemic shut down my kind of work overnight. If you weren't covering the pandemic, no outlet wanted your work and they didn't have a budget for your work anyway. It's only been in the first few months of 2022 that I have felt recovery starting from the pandemic. So while the recession really put a ding in how I did business, the pandemic put a ding in my business, but it also forced me to evaluate how I run my business and change my business model because things are a lot different now than they were two and a half years ago. And whether it's for better or for worse, it's for what we're going to get. So I've got to figure out how to make it better by always being able to adapt how I run my company in order to keep myself in business. And I think a lot of small businesses go through that. They don't have to be reporters. They don't have to be into media like me or making movies or writing books. Whatever it is that they're into to keep their business afloat, that has to be manipulated and changed along the way in order to keep growing with what's happening around us in our nation and even in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, not to minimize the disruption on people's lives, but, you know, I've seen, you know, lots of people become incredibly creative during this time with their businesses. You're right about that. Creativity, I think, is off the charts. And I think it's motivated in some cases by desperation. When you're dealing with an impossible time for the planet, nearly everything you're trying to do seems impossible. And man, if you can pull it off, it's so rewarding. And so, yeah, you're seeing a lot of creativity. You know, we just, we met at the International Fly Tackle Dealer Show a few weeks ago. And I was so excited not only to see people in full face in person, but to see what they had come up with for the two years that we'd been apart. Some brilliant innovations come out when you're working through desperate times and just trying to figure out how to make things work so you can carry on. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of speaking about, you know, how you've changed your workflow, you know, uh, as a freelancer, do you only work on assignment or do you independently produce content and then go shop it and try to find a home for it later? Oh, good question. Do I, I work on assignment? Yes, most definitely. For certain outlets, they say, this is what we want, go cover it. Uh, If I tried to pitch them something, they'd say, we love that idea, we don't have the budget for it. So certain outlets dictate what I cover. Other outlets want me to be constantly pitching ideas. So I'm always looking for what people are talking about. What are people interested in? What is it that people want to know more about? And those are the, the stories that I want to do. And those are the ones that go to outlets that I can pitch. Then there's a third category, which is stuff that I find intriguing. And I know how to turn it into a story that makes other people find it intriguing. Those projects. Those are probably my favorite projects, but I can put my heart into any other style of storytelling, whether it's by assignment or by pitch. But that one where I go, ooh, this is really cool and people will really want to know about this if I can tell it in the right way, those ones are the ones that really get me going. Yeah, absolutely. I have a few of those projects too. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you produce, um, you know, doing research for the interview, you know, you've worked for a lot of different people, but you're regularly putting out content out in a lot of different channels. And I was wondering if you just kind of give uh, our listeners a quick summary of kind of where they can find Chris Milgate. 
the best place to find Chris Milgate is tightlinemedia.com. And that is kind of the hub for all of my work. So if I'm trying to work for someone new, I send them there to look at my work samples. Someone says, I saw this film that you produced and I want to watch it again. Where can I see it? Some of those are on my website. Not all of them, but some of them are there. So a lot of times the best place to go is there because you can see a big variety of my print and video content. As far as the outlets that I work for, PBS is one of those outlets. Um, So is USA Today, Film Stream. That's another one that your audience probably looks at, especially on the fishing side. I do a lot of assignments for them. Uh, in, In the West, in Idaho, I work with the PBS affiliates. So individually, someone like an Idaho Public Television runs my production. Um, newspaper right now, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've got anything in newspaper right now. But magazine-wise, it runs the gamut from the Bugle, produced by Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, to Trout, produced by Trout Unlimited. Those are on the nonprofit side. And so I can write within the profit side, say like a film stream, but I can also produce stories for the nonprofit or the conservation-minded publications, those pick up a lot of my stories as well, like Trout and Bugle. Yeah, and both of those are, I I think, kind of in that not-for-profit space, have particularly high production quality. Exactly. So you have to remember that when you're working in my space, um, I don't get paid to sit and visit around the water cooler. I get paid to produce stories. And when you you offer me a nickel for... Uh, per word per per story, I'm not interested. Working for a nickel per word doesn't feed my family. So I want to go to the higher end publications. I also have my own publication that produces in Idaho called East Idaho Outdoors. It's a high gloss publication, 50,000 circulation in the area I live. That's a large majority of the market. But it's high gloss. It's done well. It has to look right. If I'm going to hold myself to this high expectation of work, the outlets that I work with also needs to expect that of their writers and they also need to pay appropriately for high quality work. Yeah, gosh, we could probably, I know we could have a completely uh, extra episode if we talk just about outdoor writing and how to make a living, right? <laughs> <laughs> People love that topic. And I think why the reason they love it is because they think it sounds glamorous. Well, I can tell you right now, working in a wildfire where your nose bleeds or when it's 20 below on the river and your snot freezes, those are not glamorous situations. Those are situations that I'm willing to be in because the story is important and I'm willing to suffer a bit for it, but they also have to have their due on the other end. I can't turn that story for free. And there are a lot of writers that want to do it for free because they want to get into this business. But the thing to remember here is I am not a fisher that thinks it would be cool to tell outdoor stories. I'm a journalist who just happens to know how to fish. And this is my profession, not a hobby. So I'm pretty obsessive about what I do and I have to guard that and respect my skill set by not working for cheap. That doesn't help anybody in the industry. Yeah, that's a, it's a tough one too with all of the free content that's out there. And I think at least my take on it is it makes curation even more important. Right. You know, when an, an editor says, I can't afford you, that's, that's a cop out because what he's really doing is he's going to go get a cheaper writer because I know there's 10 more, 20, 30 more cheaper than me, but their skill set isn't there. So when their story comes in, he has 10, 20, 30 times more work on his end because he wasn't willing to pay to get it done right the first time. Yeah, maybe he likes editing and buying red pencils. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so who are some of the videographers and writers that you like to follow, Chris? I always think about 
when people ask me about the mentor question, I always think about how that may have changed over my career. And it's not so much that it's changed, but I think for a lot of my career, there was a void. When I was in college, no one held my hand. No one helped me figure out how to do my career. And I hated that. So when people ask me today, you know, how do I get started? What do I need to do? What's your advice? I want to offer it because I really wanted someone to help me when I started and I didn't have it. So in the beginning, there wasn't a mentor. And then there was people like Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters. There's a poster of Peter Jennings still hanging in my garage. <laughs> and so those people were what, who I would look up to because they were those traditional news icons. And then things started to evolve. And I didn't have anyone holding my hand again. And I figured out how to do it without someone doing it because I was so out of the box. Even my insurance agent has a hard time figuring out how to insure my equipment because I'm not a traditional worker in the news setting in a newsroom. And so there's a different level of exposure when you're working in the woods and there's grizzly bears. That's a whole different level of liability, right? So there was some things that I have to learn as I go and pioneer on my own. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that we figured out how to pioneer out how to do my job. And then things evolve even farther and I start making films and I'm speaking at an event and we're showing a film about salmon and salmon, someone stands up with a question during the question and answer period and says, you are better than Ken Burns. <laughs> and I just, I say, stop, say that again. Like, it's just unbelievable to hear that. I don't think I'm better than Ken Burns. But the important thing is here is to realize that someone else is recognizing your talents at a level of someone that you admire. I recently heard Ken Burns talking in a podcast, and he said he was working on nine projects at a time. I was fascinated by that idea. I think his work is remarkable. So to have someone put me in his league was humbling. And I think I did a film. I've done a lot of films. I've done a film, and I wrote a book at the same time. That's, that's two big projects. I'm still not up to Ken Burns' nine, but I'm well on my way, and I'm working on two productions right now at the same time. And so I'm getting there and making that next step. And, and naturally, who you're looking up to evolves as you evolve in what you're going after and your goal set. And it's pretty, pretty neat to realize that I'm aspiring to Ken Burns' status and someone in the audience at my film is saying, you're already there. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I think it's amazing, like whatever content creation medium you have to, you know, you always make these things and you think you, in some ways you kind of do it for yourself then do it for other people. But it's, um, but it's always neat when you meet people in the public that kind of get what you were trying to do. Yeah. And I think also what comes in there when you say it's kind of about me figuring it out or you figuring it out, there is that personal challenge in there. Go ahead and throw 50 hurdles at me and see how fast I jump them all. Dare me. Right. And that, that there's certainly an element of let's just see if I can pull this off because I really want to, I really want to show you that I can do this, especially when you tell me that I can't. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you touched on this just a little bit earlier, you know, your current project that's kind of out in the market is ocean Idaho. Um, and I was really kind of curious if you could kind of share with us, you know, where the idea for the project came from and tell us a little bit about the film. Ocean to Idaho is one of those projects that if you asked me two years ago what was on my bucket list, I would tell you Ocean to Idaho was the top of my bucket list. So I'm in this weird 
not weird. It's probably an exciting time where my bucket list is about to change because I've just checked off the top of the bucket list. And Ocean to Idaho was an idea that I first had in 2016. And it happened when I was laying on a beaver dam in a watershed that was being restored. And it was 850 miles from the ocean. And it was a spot in central Idaho wilderness that Chinook salmon swim from the ocean to Idaho to get to, to lay their eggs to die. And I saw that fish, one Chinook salmon, on the last day of its life, it had swam 850 miles to get back to where it was born, to turn its crib into its grave, laid its eggs and was dying. And I thought, what on earth does this swimming corpse look? Why does it look like this? Like it was death with fins. And it looked awful, but it looked how it was supposed to look at the end of its life, right? And I thought, what on earth does this fish go through to get home? Ooh, and wouldn't it be cool if I could show everybody what it goes through every single mile? And I've festered over that for about, I don't know, two, three years. And by the end of 2019, I had a plan. I was following fish from the ocean to Idaho. I was going to show everybody what salmon go through to migrate home in the Pacific Northwest. Then the pandemic hit. And everything fell apart. I mean, I lost all of my work overnight. and This wasn't happening. And I thought, there's got to be a way to salvage this. So I worked with Toyota and four-wheel campers, and we stuck my house in a truck, and I lived out of a truck and camper for the whole summer of pandemic 2020. That summer when everybody was home in their house, I isolated in my house, which was on the road. I traveled solo from the ocean to Idaho while also quarantining in my truck and camper. No one was allowed in. The only time I was around people is when I was interviewing them, and we were all in masks. We were all outside, and if I needed them to take their mask off for an interview, we stepped farther apart. And I covered that whole journey. I was with the fish the whole way. And everybody at home was watching that journey over the summer while they were stuck at home. And I was on the road by myself. And the fish fell apart on their migration route. Well, I fell apart too. So while I'm showing everybody in these weekly updates what the migration ride is like, is like for fish, they're seeing me fall apart. They're seeing me show up on camera with my ear all taped up because half of it got removed for skin cancer. They're seeing me fall apart, and it's uncomfortable, and it's awkward, but we're rolling with it because nearly 3,000 fish used to make it back to Idaho to this one stretch of river, and the year I followed them, only 37 made it. If 37 are going to make it, I better make sure I make it. So the story for the salmon was falling from the ocean to Idaho. That's the film. Everything that happened in front of my camera is in the film. It's a 26-minute film that airs on PBS Affiliates. It also shows at film events. It's on tour of the film festival. You can buy it virtually on my site. There's ways for people to see what fish go through. But people were still curious about what happened to me, and I didn't want that to be the story. So I pulled myself out of the film. Everything that happened behind the camera while I was on the road for Ocean to Idaho is in a book. And it's called My Place Among Fish. People like to read the book and watch the film and learn about what happened behind the camera in every single shot that they're watching. And that's how that project came to be. And it, when you think about it, the first Chinook I ever saw in my whole entire life was in 2016. I put that project on my bucket list. The film and the book premiered in 2021, and now here we are at 22 talking about it. Yeah, very, very neat. And it's been very well received. you want to let our listeners know some of the recognition it's received? The recognition that comes with doing a massive 
committed project like following fish from the ocean to Idaho is it's so rewarding to have even just a speck of recognition for the work because you were so into it and you just wanted you wanted to bring it out and show everybody and then the big test happens to find out if everybody else is into it and you know what everybody's totally into it people love seeing the project watching the film reading the book learning about fish people have no idea that fish were trying to migrate right under our feet and they are despite all the pressures we put on the system so the recognition starts coming and you're like okay oh i'm not so crazy after all people were interested in this it wasn't just me that wanted to do this people wanted it ocean idaho is toying with the wild and scenic film festival this year it showed with the Colorado Environmental Film Festival a few months ago. It won the Excellence Award for Women Filmmakers with IndieFest and the Excellence Award for Nature. It won for Best Documentary, second place over the weekend in Idaho. It won for first place in videography. It is up for two Emmys. It is nominated for two Emmys, one in environment and one in video journalist. I have never had work that qualified for the Emmys. So even to be nominated tells me that this was the project to do regardless of how hard it was to do it. And this was the time to do it regardless of how impossible things were for our planet at the time. Very neat. And when will you hear on the Emmys if you won? The Emmys are announced in June. Uh, Just a few weeks to wait, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I just have to sweat it out for a few more weeks. (laughs) It's all good. And I know, you know, we've talked about fish, um, but I know that your interest in the outdoors is much broader than that. You know, what are some of the issues and stories that you're following? Wow, the issues and stories that I'm following right now, they kind of ebb and flow between a few couple of themes. So it's better if we talk about the themes of what's on radar right now versus a specific. And the themes run like this. I've covered the outdoor and the environment for 25 years now. And I've witnessed a significant shift in how society views our natural resources. I've documented it. I've seen the change. I'm hopeful for where it's going. And the shift looks like this. Two decades ago, all our resources were all about what we got out of them. Mine, log, drill, develop. All of that still continues today. But today, we've also had this mind, I call it a brain bender, We're changing the way we think about our natural resources. It's no longer about what we get out of them as far as extraction goes. But now we've figured out that these natural resources, these woods and these rivers, these places we go to escape the crazy, these places mean more to us left as they are, or in some cases, such as river restoration, put back together. Some of these places for salmon have to be put back together before the salmon want to return to them. We're finding value in keeping our resources in a way that we didn't always find value in. It's more than a dollar sign now. And I like seeing that. So following that shift of people realizing, oh, hey, this place means more than just a subdivision. That's a story I will cover any day. That's a remarkable thing to see happening. The other thing is climate change. That wasn't a word I could even say in some of the outlets I worked for about five years ago. I mean, just five years ago, that was still a denial factor. So it's interesting to see where the pandemic has pushed us. There's not many people denying climate change at this point. I mean, and if you are, you're not looking at, looking at what's going on outside. So it feels like 
the stories that I first did two decades ago could almost come out again right now and they'd be brand new for so many people because they weren't really paying attention to how our planet was changing two decades ago. Certainly not to the extent that they're paying attention to it now. And the third thing is presence. It's the presence of us as people on the landscape and how that is shifting today. There's dramatic movement. People want to come west. I live in Idaho Falls, an hour and a half from Yellowstone National Park. The influx of people coming in is crushing. And that all of a sudden turns those special places we all like to escape to into something else. For many years, Idaho was considered the black hole of the TV markets or the media markets, or it was just not the place you went. And when I would speak at public events, people would say, of all the places to live, why Idaho? Why are you in Idaho? And I would say, why not? If you're asking me why I'm here, it's because you don't know what's here. And so at the point, maybe five, certainly 10 years ago, a lot of these places that weren't visited were the places where people were saying, look what we have, come visit, come see our rivers, come see our forests. And now that's switching to, ooh, look what we have to protect. Because now all the people are coming. People are coming outside. You see that a lot in the fishing industry, especially fly fishing. How many years has everybody been talking about how we need to get more people outside? Well, guess what? We didn't figure out how to do that. The pandemic did. It pushed everybody outside. Everybody wants to be outside. They want to try new things. They want to stick their feet in that river and throw a fly. Now what? Now we have to figure out how to manage all those people on the resource because the resource didn't get bigger. The crowd just did. That's definitely a topic worth covering on any given day right now, too. Sure. And, you know, in terms of climate change and conservation and preservation, what do you think we can attribute that shift in behavior and attention to? The shift in our behavior and our attention to what's happening to our planet has happened because of the pandemic. I think there was an awareness growing before the pandemic started. But what happened is <laughs> life shut down <laughs> during the pandemic. We all know it. I traveled through the Pacific Northwest by myself in a truck and camper, and I went through areas that were so shut down I couldn't get, even get off the exit. I don't even know what Oregon looks like with people in it. I'm probably the only person in the world that knows what an empty Oregon looks like, but I do. And I know that's because everybody was home. They took that serious. They shut down. They went home. And while they were there, they lost a lot of the distractions of everyday life. Yes, there were. I didn't say stress. I said distraction. The stresses were immense. How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to breathe? Those things were huge. But a lot of the other things went away. Traffic going out to eat, going out to the movies, all those things went away. And yet we could still step outside and get fresh air and be alone in most places in the country and find some space outside. And that grew the awareness of the outside space astronomically. And then we started going, wow, this place is, is so cool. How come I never came here? And how can I make sure that I can keep coming here? And that's when we started rolling in, hey, our natural resources uh, they're probably struggling and we were not paying attention and now we are. So now everybody wants to step up and figure out, all right, how can we stop the bleeding? And that's where we're at. And it's kind of a, it seems like a weird term to use, but it's a magical moment because people are engaged and we've got this window before they get taken over by all the distractions of everyday life. 
again, where they want to do something. They're engaged and they want to act and figure out how we keep our planet in a better state than we've been treating it. Yeah, very, very neat. And, you know, Chris, before I let you go, is there anything that I've left out that you'd like to share with our listeners? I've covered the outdoor and environment beat for more than two decades, and it can be pretty depressing. And there's a lot of loss of animals, of space, water, all of those things. Our resources have have sustained significant loss, and it's really easy to be hopeless, right? And I really want people to leave with discussions with me hopeful. I want them full of hope. And I think the way to do that is to show them what our wild can do if we let it. And a lot of the projects I do, including following salmon, a disappearing fish through the Pacific Northwest, is to show that this is what it's like when the wild tries to make its way with us in the way. And I said earlier, 37 fish made it to the finish line when I followed them. 37 is still more than zero. That's why I'm optimistic. The wild isn't done yet. We are not done yet. Never give up on the wild and never give up on yourself. We'll figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Chris, uh, what's the best way for folks to follow your adventures in the field and on the water? If you're on social media, all of my platforms are Chris Milgate, whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever. I'm not quite up to TikTok yet, but social media, go to go look for Chris Milgate. You'll find me there. I'm happy to interact with you there. When I'm on the road, I post updates there and that's pretty interactive. So that's a, that's a good time. If you're looking to look for more work, it's tightlinemedia.com. There's a shop there. You can buy virtual movie tickets to watch Ocean to Idaho. You can buy signed copies of books. You can look at other films that are there. You can also contact me through there and that's tightlinemedia.com. That's great. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes. Well, and Chris, I really appreciate you spending time with me this evening. Thank you for spending time and showing interest in the work that I do and in the places that we inhabit, our wild places, especially. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out the Take Action link for Bristol Bay in the show notes. Tight lines, everybody.